to a special episode of Taking Ship. We were joined by Noah Rothman last week, the associate editor of Commentary Magazine, uh, which we mentioned during last week's episode that we released. We decided to release the interview separately because uh, the interview went on much longer than we initially planned, which is uh, terrific and very generous of Noah to spend that much time with us. And we decided we'd give you an extra special uh, Christmas week episode because of our travel schedules and uh, just general scheduling issues over the next uh, two or three weeks, we may not be able to keep up with our weekly posts. We will do our best, but between travel schedules and Batgirl, that may prove to be impossible. Uh, another note, we apologize for the sound quality. Uh, these things happen. We are currently blaming it on net neutrality, but it could have been just about anything. Um, you will hear in this interview uh, a lot of ideas and concepts and, and theories and conservative thought that Frank and I um, disagree with, uh, as you'll know from listening to this. Things like uh, multilateral diplomacy and um, uh, other issues, uh, particularly around Black Lives Matter and identity politics. Uh, we chose to have this interview first because uh, Noah is a, a, a really great thinker um, and was generous with his time and is a, seemed seemingly like a great guy. So he was willing to talk with us. And we approached this very much from the perspective of three guys talking in a bar trying not to shatter each other for no reason, uh, which is the way that Frank and I usually approach each episode of Taking Ship. Um, and most importantly, uh, while you're listening to this, just think about where you agree, disagree, things that you would find uh, problematic. Let us know about it. Please tweet us at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in personify. Uh, please uh, leave us a review and rate us on iTunes or whatever podcasting service you use. Those really, really help us. And um, enjoy this. We, we uh, hope you uh, take the time to listen to this in full. And once again, we really thank Noah for his time, and uh, be sure to follow him and read his stuff on Commentary Magazine and on Twitter. Thanks so much. Welcome back, everybody. We are uh, very excited about our guest today. We have Noah Rothman. He is the associate editor of Commentary Magazine. For those of you who don't know what Commentary is, it is, the, um, it is America's premier monthly magazine of opinion and, and a pivotal voice in American intellectual life. Since its inception in 1945 and increasingly after, it emerged as the flagship of neoconservatism in the 1970s. The magazine has been consistently engaged with several large interrelated questions, the fate of democracy and of dem democratic ideal ideas and the world threatened by totalitarian ideologies, the state of American and Western security, the future of the Jews, Judaism, and Jewish culture in Israel, the United States and around the world, and the preservation of high culture in an age of political correctness and the collapse of critical standards. Uh, for those of you who listen to our podcast, uh, I imagine that we imagine that you uh, can see that Frank and I may have some questions about all of this. Um, but we are, rather than debating things which uh, we will have no real conclusions on or agreement on, we are rather going to follow uh, the editor-in-chief of, of uh, Lawfare, uh, Benjamin Wittes, who's had, and his, uh, Frank, what is it called, the um, uh, Not For Now movement or whatever it is, where everybody's supposed to get along hunky and dory so that we can kill Trump and then get on with our lives? Yeah, something of that nature. Yeah, so we're going to try to follow that as a policy. Um, so with that, Noah, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Um, we like to start these out with just sort of give us your biographical sketch. Where are you? How'd you get there? You know, everything you can about you in a couple minutes. 
Uh, I am the associate editor of Commentary Magazine, um, which is a 73-year-old opinion journal of news and analysis, um, cultural and political analysis. And I came to that vocation from blogging uh, on the conservative side of news and opinion for, I guess, pretty much the last decade. Uh, I was at hotair.com prior to that, which is a Salem property, uh, Mediaite before that. Uh, which is Dan Abrams' vehicle, and uh, a variety of other publications, Campaigns and Elections Magazine, uh, other publications along those lines. I got my um, graduate degree in international affairs, focusing on the Soviet, former Soviet space and security policy, a Russian studies degree before that, and uh, I was a radio producer for the, the decade prior to that. Uh, so come to, come to the, the conservative news and analysis size writing for a living from um, the entertainment side of uh, politics, the info politics tainment business. Uh, and that's, I guess, me in a, in a minute. All right. That works terrifically. Um, we, we, we often tell our listeners of other podcasts that they should check out, and uh, I can highly recommend listening to the commentary podcast. Um, you and, and, uh, um, and John and Abe, and uh, you have a new member as well whose name completely escapes me right now. So Rabbi Mari, who comes yeah. to us from the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, um, these guys have great conversations. Uh, it's very enlightening. It's uh, I, Frank and I, one thing that we do agree on very frequently is that it's always important to hear everybody's arguments and hear kind of all sides of different things. And I think that you guys on commentary do a great job and, and with, a, with a good amount of humor, I think, also. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate um, that. So with that— we're going to kind of just dive right into this. Um, and being that you guys are, are pretty staunch never Trumpers, um, how does never the never Trump Republican movement work if you agree with his deregulation agenda, um, back his judicial nominees, maybe not the guy yesterday who Kennedy kind of tore apart, um, and you know parts of his tax policy, and uh, more importantly, particularly for the for you guys at commentary. Um, kind of the two signature aspects of his foreign policy, um, his approach to Iran and the decision to move the capital to recognize Jerusalem as the capital, something which I applaud wholeheartedly. Okay, well, a lot there. First of all, yeah. the the quote unquote never Trump movement was a campaign vehicle, an election issue. It's functionally mooted by Donald Trump's election. You can't have a never Trump movement when the Trump is the president. Then it's a never president movement. At which point you are saying that. Anybody who makes accommodations with the president has somehow abandoned their ideology, and it's precisely the opposite. Uh, a conservative movement needs to have a conservative uh, ideolog ideological inclination, and to be reflexively antagonistic towards the president it isn't ideological, it's um, emotional. And it's not something that the Never Trump movement ever was. Uh, conservatives, as I understand them, who haven't completely given over to a reflexive ideological antipathy towards the president, not on a case-by-case -case basis, but a blanket frustration with this president, and no accommodation for anything he does that is uh, valuable because it would give him cover for the other things that they don't like about him, is to me intellectually dishonest. Uh, the conservative movement needs to keep Donald Trump in check, which means applauding him when he does something right and vigorously opposing him when he does something wrong. And that, to me, is only intellectually—the um, only intellectually honest way to go about it. For example, as you mentioned, uh, some of his judicial appointments are 
completely laudable. Uh, the <clears throat> the extent to which they've been hammered through by the majority leader in the Senate is uh, a credit to both Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump, although neither of them seem apparently all that interested in giving either one credit for it. At least their fans of either one aren't interested in giving either of them credit for it, when in fact neither of those – there would be no, uh, no you know, significant increase in conservatives on the federal bench without both of them working in concert. Similarly, there's a lot to like about Donald Trump's foreign policy, most notably the fact that he hasn't done anything that he promised he would do on the campaign trail. He hasn't gone after America's bilateral or multilateral trade relations, with the exception of TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was pretty much dead on arrival long before Donald Trump took the oath of office. Um, he has not gone after our alliances uh, like NATO, for example. He has not compelled our allies to pay for the privilege of our alliance. Uh, and he has not reoriented American foreign policy towards American adversaries like Moscow, uh, much to the chagrin of Moscow. Uh, he was the, the ignorance of America's alliance structure in the campaign led Donald Trump to lead Moscow on quite a bit. And as a result, we have probably the worst relationship we've had in the last decade now with, with uh, the Kremlin, because they anticipated that there would be quite more, a lot more deference to their geopolitical position than they're receiving. Uh, so all these things are good. Jerusalem, by the way, is good. Restoring sanctions on Iran is good. Restoring North Korea to the list of terror uh, supporters is good. Those things are good. And they deserve to be praised for what they are. Um, now, the—so a lot of this administration is defensible with the exception of the president. The president himself is a, a bore allowed, uh, a man who courts controversy, who, uh, who supports division and dissension, and uh, who without uh, this administration would be a lot more defensible. So making the case against Donald Trump personally, his personal leadership, when it's deserved— and particularly when he begins to flirt with uh, shattering Republican, little r Republican norms, like going after his Justice Department and his special uh, counsel's office in the event that he does do that, which you can see the groundwork being laid for that now, needs to be needs to have voices who are uh, have enough gravity within and among conservatives and Republicans as possible. Uh, in order to make that cr criticism stick. If that move is made, Republicans aren't going to be listening to Democrats about it. Republicans aren't going to listen to a word Jen Rubin says about it or Brett Stevens, as much as I love both of them, because they're reflexively anti-Trump on virtually every position. You're going to need people who they admire and respect and who they see as independent voices and honest, intellectually honest voices. I'm probably not one of them, but there are many other Republicans who would be better served um, by being honest and about Donald Trump when he's right and being forthright when he's wrong in order to make those criticisms stick when we really need them to. That's that's entirely fair. Um, Frank, before uh, you dive in, uh, no, this is kind of a follow-up to a question, that, uh, a question that I had while listening to your guys' podcast yesterday. You were talking about uh, the Flight 93 election and um, the base and that people sort of had given up. I'm summarizing this very uh, poorly, but— um, and I suggest everybody actually listen to the podcast from yesterday. It was also a really good um, uh, analysis of the uh, Alabama election. But with the Flight 90, this concept of the Flight 93 thing that, uh, you know, the whole country is going to hell in a handbasket. The only way we're going to save it is if we elect Donald Trump. Um, how exactly does that square with the fact that the people who elected Donald Trump are some solid 
base of the Republican Party. Um, that that's the same self group that the conservative, you know, conservative Republicans, such as you know yourself or the uh, you know the Jeb Bush bull or Mitt, Mitt Romney um, um, fans. Uh, how did that? How did the wires kind of cross where this group of people was so despondent and disgusted by the leadership that? Mitt Romney or John McCain or Jeb Bush were potentially going to display that they looked at Donald Trump as the only option? Uh, yeah, well, failure has a lot of fathers. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't I don't know whether or not, during the, the primaries, even up to the moment that Donald Trump became the, the Republican Party's nominee, there was quite a bit of antipathy towards him among uh, GOP voters and um, hesitancy to embrace his candidacy. That did change. When he became the president, the leader of the party, titular head of the party, the standard bearer, uh, and that's to be expected. Uh, a lot of those feelings were campaign related, just as the Never Trump movement was campaign related. Um, but the the notion that I think generated the most support for Donald Trump in those primaries was the idea that Republicans were particularly capitulatory towards Barack Obama. Um, which is a bizarre notion from the perspective of any Democrat. I mean, you can only hold that notion if you don't surround yourself with Democrats or don't even really talk to Democrats or liberals very much, because they would say precisely the opposite, that, that Republicans in the Obama era were reflexively obstructionist. Um, the precise opposite impression is held by conservatives, particularly those who rallied around Trump. Uh, the idea was that Republicans were, uh, were subservient and servile and lacked a spine and gave Donald Trump or Barack Obama virtually everything he wanted. And um, that isn't entirely delusional. It's a self, it's, it's a self you know, indulgent construction that has virtually no bearing on reality. But it isn't entirely delusional insofar as Republicans campaigned on platforms that they couldn't deliver. And they had very little intention of delivering, which we didn't know until the Trump era. So the notion that Republicans were were being, uh, you know, were lying about their desire to repeal Obamacare, for example, and uh, the variety of other things that they, you know, leave the borders unprotected, et cetera, so forth, was bunk because they did quite a bit in Congress to um, curtail Obamacare, to weaken Obamacare, to uh, secure the border. And they had to deal with a president who wouldn't sign any legislation along those lines. And so anybody who said prior to January 20th, 2017, that Republicans gave away the store didn't have any evidence to support it. Afterwards, however, they did. They had plenty of evidence to support to suggest that Republicans were overpromising and underdelivering and had very little intention of making good on their promises. So, in a way, the Trump fan was onto something. They did see that Republicans were selling them a bill of goods. Uh, even though they had no evidence to support that contention, it ended up being correct. So Republicans who are anti-Trump Republicans do have a little bit of soul-searching to do on that form. However, the pitch that was sold to Donald Trump's voters was as depressingly nihilistic as anything I've ever seen in my years of following politics. Uh, the Flight 93 election meme, as you noted, was a uh, an essay that was penned for, I think it was Claremont Review, by Michael Anton, who was writing under a pseudonym at the time. And Michael Anton is now a member of Donald Trump's National Security Council. Uh, and it essentially held that um, the, the country was the 
Flight 93, the, the plane that was intentionally crashed in a field in Pennsylvania on the morning of September 11, 2001. The, con- the, the country's going down. It is, no matter what, it is just too, uh, too corrupted, too, you know, anti uh, the working class, uh, American male, something along those lines. Uh, it was essentially that the country is doomed. And so we have two options. One is to sit quietly like placid little Hindu cows and accept our fates, or to rage against them, storm the cockpit, and even if we can't land this thing, at least we'll make a valiant effort in our own defenses. Uh, you know, and, and for somebody who actually believes that, to go to work in the White House, steering the country, directing the country, presumably making America great again, suggests that he never believed his own BS, um, which he shouldn't have, because Michael Anton was a smart guy making a ton of money on Wall Street at the time. He was playing a Carney Rube act. And he was doing a pretty good job of being a Carney Barker. But the people who bought it really do have that kind of a hopeless sense of things. They really do feel like they're the last generation. Uh, and they still feel like that. It's it's really generally limited to a, an older generation. Uh, uh, the tail, the very beginning of the baby boomer generation, people who are in their late 60s, early 70s. And young millennial conservatives just can't see it. They, they cannot see the extent to which Every and any compromise is justified morally, politically, legally, what have you, because things are in such a dire state. This construct in the minds of these Trump-supporting people of an elderly—or not elderly, but older generation—who justify any number of compromises in order to support Donald Trump, and it just goes right over the head of a millennial conservative who doesn't see the country in such dire straits, who doesn't see it as on the precipice of destruction, of, a, of, of moral degradation to a point that justifies moral degradation. We don't see it. We just talk past each other on that. That's, that's something I will never be able to, to really understand and diagnose and therefore prescribe some sort of a remedy for. It's just it, this, this really intractable division, a generational division that um, really demonstrates why Donald Trump had the support that he had. So I want to pick up on that point. If because you're, I mean, you're right. This is the Republican base. It seems the, I mean, the, the base was big enough to elect Donald Trump. The Republican base was taken in by what you described as a Carney Barker Act, and and voted for a a vision that was essentially kind of apocalyptic, right? Like this is the and and it may be that that is a generational phenomenon, and that as the old as the as the older Republican base uh, begins to age out of the voting population, to use an to use a term of art. Uh, maybe a somewhat less apocalyptically minded generation of Republicans will come up, but there is, I think, a myth within politics that people maintain that the youth will save us because they will maintain their attitudes as they get older. When, in point of fact, people's attitude, they, the younger generation as it ages, tends to look increasingly like the generation that came before. So, I guess my my question is: Is this strain of of kind of apocalypse? That we see in Republican politics, is there a danger that this is that this is now a feature, not a bug, of where American conservatism has gone? Well, I don't know. I, I can't say. I don't think that's a feature of American conservatism. I think it's a feature, as you said, of just generations of intergenerational divides. Uh, it was a sin. The, the notion that the country was doomed was obviously a cynical ploy in order to justify in the minds of Trump's supporters their support for a guy who was manifestly unqualified for, to run for the presidency. There was nothing that justified 
a vote for Donald Trump, save the fact that his opponent was a complete disaster. And if you couldn't get past that, then you had to say, well, the country is screwed anyway. So what am I going to do? Who cares? Let's just accelerate this thing. Let's all just, you know, hit hit, hit the accelerator forward right towards, towards the wall. I think that was probably the justification for it in the minds of supporters of Donald Trump, many supporters of Donald Trump, early in the primary process, in the 2015-2016 period, when when you had other Republicans, conservatives, who were more qualified for, A, to lead the conservative movement, and B, to be president. Uh, once Hillary Clinton was the nominee, it became less of an issue. Uh, it became much more about Hillary Clinton. Um, and as for the generational divide, you know, as you say, most likely all of us who are conservative millennials who don't think the country is uh, inexorably headed towards destruction and dissolution um, will probably become much more reflexive and reactionary as we get older. I mean, half these so-called, you know, the baby boomers who I'm talking about who embrace this, the country is doomed no matter what I do attitude, were dancing in the streets in 1968 and protesting Lyndon Johnson and thinking about how you know how optimistic the the they could be in in the future. So you know people change. Um, I think that's just a that's just a generational thing. That's not something that we should really look uh, look towards as as a political issue, as though it you know it's reflective of the conservative movement or the liberal movement. It's just the nature of humanity. Let me ask you this about the Republican Party, then, and I'm gonna, then I'm going to ask you the same thing about the Democratic Party. Uh, I mean, both both are, are troubled entities in their ways right now. What would what do you see? And and I realize this could be a very long answer in both cases, but but if I may, I'd like to pin you down. What would you say is the is the core of your of your belief in the Republican Party? What is your praise for the Republican Party right now, and what is your central criticism of it? So if there's one thing that you absolutely love about the Republican Party, <laughs> and one thing that you would change about the Republican Party, what are those things? And then I'm going to ask you the same about the Democratic Party. Uh, well, I'm not a Republican anymore. I have not been since May of 2016. I am a conservative, and when I vote, I vote Republican, but I decline to be um, uh, supportive of, wholly supportive of, and associated with an institution that um, is led by Donald Trump. I can't justify that in my head. Um, and the the condition that we dealt with, with the back and forth over Roy Moore, uh, sort of justifies that belief in my mind. But I am not a liberal, nor am I a Democrat or a progressive, and will never be, uh, because the Republican Party is the only party in this country, as I see it, that has a, a firm understanding of the fiscal realities associated with the oncoming entitlement crisis. Um, it is not something that we can tax our way out of. It is not something that we can spend our way out of. And I have no idea uh, how Democrats manage to convince themselves that they can. The math doesn't work for them, and yet they are absolutely wedded to this ideal. Secondly, uh, on the foreign affairs front, the Republican Party embraces a form of hard power, realistic logic that I find far more compelling than the Democratic alternative, which is far more married to the ideals, that force of personality and ideology and intangible conditions uh, will compel through process and process alone, diplomatic process, uh, ends that American Geo, American grand strategy and American national interests demand. Um, the negotiating table is, to me, generally farcical, uh, not conducive to achieving 
the, the ends that the United States sets out to achieve when it comes to foreign policy. Rather, it is an end to itself, uh, which is part of the one of the reasons why I sort of differ from so many of my colleagues in, in commentary uh, in welcoming Secretary of State Rex Tillerson's efforts to reshape the diplomatic culture at Foggy Bottom, um, insofar as he's managed it rather poorly, I think he deserves all the criticism in the world. But the idea of setting out to reshape a culture of a diplomatic culture that embraces ends and that issues process for its own sake is really quite valuable, because for too long the culture in the diplomatic community, not just in the State Department, but globally, has looked toward the process of diplomacy as and talking as though it were an achievement in and of itself. And that has become an obstacle to seeking actually achievements. Uh, and it comes when it, sometimes it takes an outsider to come in and say, oh, look, we're going to shake things up and show people that recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel doesn't set the world on fire. It is an acknowledgment of realities on the ground that reshapes the diplomatic landscape, and as such, results in um, results in in changes that are that are actually beneficial. The Barack Obama Barack Obama's administration deserves some oblique criticism, even though it's tongue in cheek, rather rather praise, not criticism, tongue in cheek though, for pursuing the Iran deal. Um, not because it was a good move; it was actually quite disastrous, and I think it will result. In, uh, in a few years' time, in the nuclearization of the Islamic Republic. But what that compelled, uh, perhaps most likely they didn't see this coming, was a remarkable thaw in relations between the Sunni states and the Sunni kingdoms and Israel. reduced the conditions that have led to a peace process possibility, the possibility of a peace process, in ways that no Democrat probably ever envisioned, because all it took was to say— was to create a threat out of Iran, was to lean on Iran to uh, to pursue peace and security in, um, in, in Iraq through the Shiite militias, and to put it on a glide path to nuclearization, to get the Sunni kingdoms in, in uh, Saudi Arabia and Egypt and the UAE to come together and say, look, we have a bigger enemy here, and then pursue a peace process through, uh, through with Israel, sotto voce and behind the scenes, resulting in the shattering of the notion that all conflict in the region stems from the uh, Palestinian conflict. The only people who still hold to that ideal are in the diplomatic core. It's nonsense. It's bunk. It's been debunked. Nobody's seen it yet. So, uh, so the core beliefs of the Republican Party, in my view, that I endorse are on the foreign affairs side and on the reformation of the entitlement side and supply-side economics and reduced taxation burdens to incent investment and capital investments and to create you know, an, an economy that's a growth economy. So I'm generally far more of a conservative and far more of a Republican than I ever won't be. My problems with Donald Trump are purely on his, his personality, his behavior, his contempt for norms and contempt for the law. And I really don't see how this presidency ends well. Uh, and because he is such a danger to the Republican Party and the conservative movement, that is why I don't support him. Not because I've stopped becoming a Republican or a conservative, but because I don't think he is. Thank you. This this is uh, I'm, I'm going to turn the question of the Democratic Party or to, to progressive thought in a second. But I want to take a moment to 
uh, address our listeners with a, a point that we made at the beginning of this, which is uh, this this conversation with Noah is not meant to be an occasion in which, uh, you know, Noah and I and Ellie, uh, you know, simply shout our truths at each other. Uh, there's a lot of what you just said, Noah, that I, I would I would take exception to, and 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 would probably would probably credit about as much as you would credit the uh, the beliefs that I by which that guide my own political viewpoint. Uh, but again, this is about exploring our our views here and not uh, and and not just shouting our truth at each other. Uh, so uh, let me ask you this question. Um, uh, so turning back to you, Noah, uh, what in Okay, if we're not going to talk about political parties, what in progressive thought and or the Democratic Party do you find value in? Uh, and I and I think and if your if your central criticism of the Democratic Party or progressive thought is different than one of the indictments that you gave in your answer about conservative thought and Republicans, what would that be? Well, I think progressivism. Um, I mean, his the historic ideal of progressivism, going back to you know the Triangle Fire, uh, is is. Which I, I, by the way, I'm interjecting here. I don't believe that progressives hold very much to their old progressive ideals, but that old progressive ideal is a challenge to convention. And conservatives benefit more than I think they know from these sources of challenges to convention. Um, the Democrats and the progressive movement own the civil rights movement for the most part. I mean, Republicans look back on their stance at the time and say, "Well, Republicans were supportive." of this legislation far more than we're Southern Democrats, and that's true. Um, but the reality is, is that Democrats are far more supportive of civil, modern civil rights movements today than are Republicans, and for ideological reasons, not because people are uh, more racist than other people, although I'm sure there are, but because conservatives are generally conservative. They have a tendency to uh, reject change for its own sake and pursue and prefer incrementalism. I pursue and prefer incrementalism, but that doesn't mean I don't uh, I'm not accepting of or appreciative of criticisms of that approach. And um, while I'm, I'm generally very critical of movements like, for example, the Black Lives Matter movement, I think it serves quite a bit of criticism and has gone off the rails. I do think it's extraordinarily valuable um, insofar as it's a critique of our approach to issues like uh, rather, the conservative, traditional conservative approach to issues like criminal justice and the reformation of the criminal justice process, which is absolutely necessary. And they have enjoyed quite a bit of victories. Um, uh, Paul Ryan has done a lot in through rhetoric and in his legislative approach to try to grease the skids for some sort of a bipartisan um, reform approach, uh, a criminal justice reform uh, bill. Which I'm not sure if that's ever going to become law, at least in this Congress. But his fealty to that concept is really underappreciated by the Democratic Party and by the progressive left. Um, they've essentially made an argument that has won the day. And if only they would accept their victory there, rather than continue to hammer on the fact that you know things aren't happening as fast as they want and making enemies out of Republicans, I think they would probably enjoy more success than they have so far. Uh, but in general, I think prog uh, progressivism and Democrats uh, are a valuable critique for conservatives. And while I mostly disagree with them, if you listen to what they're saying, you might sharpen your arguments and possibly uh, come to the conclusion that they have a pretty valid point here and there. Okay. Let me follow up very quickly on that. Uh, 
you mentioned that you are conservative, not a self-identified member of the Republican Party. So this this may be a question about this is more a question, I think, about Republican politics than it is about conservative thought. Uh, but there's obviously an enorm- still an enormous amount of overlap. Uh, what do you make of critiques of the Republican Party and and its relationship? And it's very I, the usual critique is that it is a very toxic relationship with race. Uh, I think there's a, there's a lot of a, there's there's certainly merit to that argument. Uh, is this you know you're right that the Democratic Party is certain has certainly been the party of the civil rights movement in the modern in the modern concept. It is you know it was in the '60s. It is today. What does this say about the Republican Party? What can is this essentially? This is my question: Is is race a fundamental problem for Republican Party politics? And if it is, how can it save its soul? And if it is not, how do we account for the persistence of that critique? Um, well, race is obviously a very uh, potent political issue. It's not as though this is news to anybody. Um, and um, I, but I think, and I've, I've essentially written a book on this, is that I think um, it has become a way in which people, particularly on the left, but not exclusively on the left, certainly, um, navigate issues that are not political and presume they are political. And I'm going to, and this has basically become this quote-unquote social justice movement, um, it, is, uh, it is a movement now that has become focused not on big things, not on big ideas, not on Rawlsian concepts of justice. It is a movement now that has become focused on little things, um, racial makeup in comic book movies, uh, the quote-unquote appropriation of culture in... Um, food and food vendors, the displaying of art that is composed by white people depicting black people, uh, which is uh, offensive to the point where these people's uh, works need to be destroyed and their careers need to be ended. And this is not me saying this. These are these advocates, so-called, quote-unquote, social justice advocates. Um, That is not racial justice. It's prejudice. It's paranoia. And it's absolutely crippling. And I think conservatives have an argument there on race that Democrats do not internalize, and they should, because it is absolutely intellectually hobbling. And I don't think they've internalized the extent to which um, the pursuit of a kind of vindictive and uh, paralyzing racial consciousness, all-consuming racial consciousness, blinds them to genuine political issues that have no racial context. And generally, the the American public's frustration with the notion that all things stem from race, all uh, conflicts and political uh, political discussion that has a racial element, and there's quite a there's quite a, a lot of people on the left who are political commentators, particularly who display obeisance and fealty to this notion that there is a racial subtext or general text to just about every political issue we deal with. Uh, I think that's wrong, frankly, and I think it's also blinding and obscures them to the notion that they're alienating people who would otherwise be receptive to their message. Um, and it's become something that's like a cause celeb. It's an activist cause. 
uh, and, and again, I, I've written in basically an entire book on this concept, which is coming out, I think, in 2019. Hopefully we can push that one up. But uh, it is generally – generally I think that while conservatives are, are benefited from the critiques of the progressive left on race, just likewise – Progressives benefit from critiques from the conservative right on race, uh, and, and too often neither of us are listening to one another. Maybe some. I, I think I, I understand where you're coming from, and I, and I think some of the examples that you've cited of the way that uh, this can get into there, there can be issues of of racial representation uh, and and cultural appropriation that can that can at first glance and and maybe with examination of a perhaps a little bit trivial. Uh, I will say. The counter to this, and I would like to hear your argument, is the counter to this is if Democrats were to take, if progressives were to take on that that critique, mm. it is possible that they might be a little bit slower on the draw uh, to criticize potential instances of cultural appropriation. Uh, if Republicans were to take the Democratic critique on race a little more seriously, you would be talking about uh, a, a more serious attempt to address. Uh, police violence against racial minorities, uh, the persistent income inequality and wealth inequality that exists between uh, with ethnicity. So I guess my argument is, you, well, to the extent that the, the critique of the left on race has merit, it is merit on the fringes of the issue, whereas the extent that the left's critique of the right on race has merit, that merit goes to whether people live or die, whether they prosper or don't. Is that, is that something you address in your book? And, and if so, can you give us a little preview? Um, well, I would say, frankly, that the, the the democratic notion, the progressive notion, that there is a plague of uh, explicitly and exclusively racial violence in which uh, police officers, particularly white police officers, are targeting African Americans for mur uh, at least, you know, at violence, if not murderous violence, um, is simply not supported in the data. We had a 2016 study, and, and this is really frustrating for Democrats to even say this, because it has become a, a religious concept, that uh, we had a study conducted by, um, in, in 2016, the uh, Harvard University's Rolando Fryer Jr., who's an African-American uh, study of statistician. And economists and economics, uh, who studied uh, 1,332 police shootings over the course of uh, two for 15 years, from 2000 to 2015, in 10 major American police departments in big urban centers in places like Texas, Florida, and California, and he did find that African Americans are to be handcuffed, for example, to be touched by police officers during the course of a confrontation, but he did not find that they were more likely to die in a shooting. Um, officer-involved shootings, I'm quoting here, in officer-involved shootings in these 10 cities, officers were more likely to fire their weapons without having first been attacked when the suspects were white. Black and white civilians involved in police shootings were likely to have been carrying a weapon. Both of these results undercut the idea that police wield lethal force with racial bias. And I'm, that's just status statistics. Now, when you issue that result in this study, in a conversation with a progressive, you don't get chin stroking and introspection and perhaps an, an acknowledgement of this fact and an, 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 a confrontation of this fact. You get uh, anger and withdrawal and paranoia and personal attacks. And I, this, is, this is a problem with our discourse generally. But it is also a broader problem with what I believe is the progressive ethos. And it is an ethos 
It's a it's a worldview, uh, which has to do with some beliefs in the inherent racially unjust nature of this country. And when you confront them with facts that contradict that notion, they don't welcome them with a sigh of relief. They regret they react angrily. They they don't re- they don't believe that's true. I don't think they want it to be true. And that is where I got off the boat. Uh, and I think it's a lot of where a lot of Americans get off the boat is that they don't necessarily see once they get to a point in the progressive ethos, which, again, I believe they're right when it comes to criminal justice reform, sentencing reform, um, uh, the, you know, the scaling back of the war on drugs, et cetera, and welfare programs that uh, very much have a tendency to uh, to create uh, an idea in um, in American minds that African-Americans are supportive of these programs, that they're completely the beneficiaries of these programs when they're primarily white people who benefit from these programs. Um, all those things, I think, are valuable to erasing the idea that there is a substantial and all-encompassing racial prejudice, institutional and in personal levels in this country. And that should be something that we should cheer about. We should be greeting that, that reality with you know, some sort of a, welcoming that reality. But the precise opposite occurs when you engage a dedicated progressive on this. They, they simply don't believe it. Yeah, it's that or the response could be a, a strong emotional reaction to the citation of your study. The other answer would be to cite the Nick study uh, out of uh, Louisville. But but this and this again, I think is my point. This is not about I, no. This is not about me trying to push my statistic as superior to yours. Uh, the this is a, I think a good example of the fact that this we are not even able to agree on a common reality here. And and you have just indicted uh, uh, you know a view to which I I would at least in part and maybe largely subscribe. Um, and and you did it citing evidence, which I appreciate. Uh, it is, it's this is this, and, and and we're not going to resolve this on this on uh, in this conversation uh, about the reality of of whether about the reality of police violence and 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 uh, and race. And this is just a really good example of the fact that uh, of the way that we we share such a different reality uh, and have you know profoundly different citations for that reality. Uh, so again, well, I would continue. I mean, not to again. I am wholly supportive of your effort here to have a, a logical and, uh, and friendly conversation on these issues. I would, however, add that when um, we had the, initially had this conversation about police violence, which kind of became a, a, a national cause uh, in 2014 after the death of uh, Eric Garner uh, at the hands of a police officer, and then rolling into the, the, the Ferguson Police Department issue and the Ferguson, just the protests in Ferguson. Um, we had an African-American president, and the only thing that he could do was set out a variety of recommendations to local police departments saying that we're not going to um, provide you with Homeland Security Department uh, surplus. That was the extent of the federal government's ability to intervene on the police violence issue. Uh, now, we could probably have a national conversation about the deference to which juries, for example, Treat um, police officers who are engaged in these in these uh, these uh, some of these killings are actual atrocities. Uh, Eric Garner and Tamir Rice, and there was um, there was a, a white gentleman who was uh, murdered. The other video came out the other day, and it was the most horrible thing I've ever seen of a, of a person who was really persecuted and then eventually killed by a police officer who was not a, not indicted by a jury. The jury system should probably be a little bit harsher. On police officers, but the reality is, is that the federal government simply doesn't have any jurisdiction 
in this area. There's very little that they can do, certainly at the presidential level. Um, and that's not a conversation we have. We don't talk about the legislative legislative remedies for this sort of thing. It devolves into posturing and signaling, and there's there's not a lot that's productive when it comes to that conversation, which leads me to believe that it's not about a productive conversation, that it's about posturing and signaling and creating a, a cause around which you can energize and organize a coalition of voters, which is politics. I think I, where, where you and I have a small iota of agreement here, um, and, and I think and you do see this, in, you do see this in, in progressive organizing circles, you are, is that there is very, there's a limited federal remedy for this problem. Uh, whether you agree with this problem or not, whether like how you define the problem is, a, I mean, obviously there we have a difference of opinion there as well. Uh, I would agree that for the most part, the solutions to this are almost certainly local, uh, and and organizations that are looking and organizing locally, I think, are probably it, to the extent that an organization is combating this by by doing local work, and and a lot of them are. Uh, then I think you're, um, you know, the, the, I think that sort of is a good indicator, a little bit of a temperature taking on their on their clarity of thought. Uh, so that's that's the point on which I think you and I have some agreement. Is clearly this is there's a limited amount that the federal that that can be done federally. This is primarily a local issue. I think we would disagree on the nature of the problem and the extent and and the nature of those local remedies. Uh, but I'm, we've we've been talking for a, a good while. Unless you want to respond to that, I'm I'm content to leave it there. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm fine with that. I think that we've. Oh, yeah, we have been talking for quite a while. Okay. Well, yes, I'm okay with that. We've we've, we've covered the gamut. I think. All right, Noah. Before we let you go, I do want to uh, just pull it back into um, uh, current the current political situation. And uh, one of the points you made uh, earlier uh, that we t- discussed a little bit earlier was sort of the failure as many fathers and how we ended up with Donald Trump. And I guess. The question that uh, um, I'd, I'd like to kind of close out uh, this conversation with, which, uh, again, thank you for joining us. And I think this has been uh, um, a very useful, um, uh, informative conversation for our listeners and then something that Frank and I'll probably discuss and pull apart and discuss more in the future, um, is uh, if Donald Trump sort of came about because there wasn't uh, um, a good argument, enough of an argument against him, um, or enough of an argument for anybody else to save the world from the apocalypse that was dreamed up in people's in people's heads. Where do uh, traditional conservatives uh, um, like yourself? Where are you looking for leadership? Who are you looking to for leadership in in, in going into 2018 into 2020? Um, it, it, with the realistic thought that that there really is no option for a third party in the way that that in the way our electoral process works. Yeah, right. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, it's a million years from now, basically. So 2020 is to even think about that as self-indulgent. Um, we have so long and the political makeup of the, the environment and the landscape will be so different from what it is today. It's impossible to even predict. But uh, I but didn't vote for I mean, there still has to be some view of, you know, who who you're looking to to be leaders? Well, I mean, I suppose the, the see the party as it is constructed today is pretty conservative. I mean, it's very hard for me to have a much of a problem, even with a lot of Donald Trump's administration, with the exception of people like Robert Lighthizer at Trade and Wilbur Ross. Uh, a lot of the administration is pretty defensible. It's a conservative administration that was built by 
uh, Mike Pence uh, in the transition period when uh, Chris Christie abandoned the transition process or was rather removed from the transition process. So there's a lot to be happy about with that administration, and there's a ton to be happy about with the Congress. If you're a conservative, you've watched the most conservative Congress in your lifetime, probably ever, be constructed over the course of the Obama era. Uh, and all of this, and was, this is what makes for the conflicts that we're witnessing today, is that all of this, the most conservative Republican Party in my lifetime was built up over the course of these six years in the Obama era. And then a guy ran against conservatism and won to lead that very same party. Nobody else was defenestrated in 2016. No Republicans really lost their, their gigs. It was just conservatives elected an anti-conservative to lead a very conservative party. So we have naturally we have quite a bit of conflicts there. But there's just about everybody in this party I think would be supportive of uh, – would, would be somebody I can support in the absence of Donald Trump. But there's not going to be an absence of Donald Trump. And the political realities are what they are. So I – while I do anticipate that there will be a, an intra-party challenge to Donald Trump in 2020, I don't anticipate it being particularly potent. And right now it looks like – yeah, unless again, unless conditions change, um, right now it looks like the only guy who's interested in something like that is John Kasich, and he seems appeared he appears rather to be interested in running a, a Donald Trump from his left on the issue at least of Obamacare, which doesn't seem like it's going to be really going anywhere, with the exception of the repeal of the individual mandate. I mean, what's he going to run on? Is he going to run on we need to we need to get the individual mandate back? And he's going to win a Republican primary like that? It's just lunacy. So I don't, I don't see um, where that. You know, I mean, anything could change, but I don't see, uh, I don't see where there's the challenge is going to come from that I could appreciate. But it could come. It very well could come. I anticipate that there will be uh, a lot of people who are willing to fund such a project. Right. It's an interesting way that you that you describe the paradox of uh, um, uh, of Donald Trump taking over this party that otherwise would make. Um, um, traditional conservative swoon. Um, but we've been talking for uh, quite some time now. And again, we want to thank you uh, for your generous time and uh, your, your agreeing to join us. Um, Frank, unless you've got anything else, I think we'll let Noah go. Uh, no, I, I think we're good unless we want to do the lightning round. Yeah, let's uh, move to our uh, patented lightning round. Um, no, this is uh, just five super quick questions, uh, kind of first thing that pops into your head. Um, the first one we ask is, uh, what's the best book, TV show, movie that you've read or seen lately? I'm sorry, what? The best book or TV show or movie. What's the best one that you've seen or read lately? Oh, gosh. I, you know, I don't do very much of any of those things. I could just tell you what I'm watching, period. I don't know whether it's best or worst. That's fine. Um, oh, gosh. What did I see the other day? So I, I just turned on... Um, a Netflix show called Fauda, which is sure. essentially Strike Back in Israel. Yeah, it's a um, great show. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, what did I read? Hang on. I'm going to squirm over here. Uh, for my uh, forthcoming book, I read uh, recently, I've read quite a bit actually for that, but the most entertaining book that I read was uh, Bruce Bowers. The Victim's Revolution, The Rise of Identity Studies, and the Closing of the Liberal Mind. You guys would probably hate it, but I think it's very valuable and beneficial, and it was an extremely quick read. just flew by, so I recommend that one. Um, 
And there was a movie that I saw the other day. Oh, uh, yeah, no. I saw a movie the other day, and I won't recommend it because it wasn't that good. <laughs> okay. Uh, the next question, uh, uh, your favorite drink, either alcoholic or not? We don't, we don't pass aspersions here. Uh, it is alcoholic. It is a vodka martini, not too dirty, not too dry. Uh, kettle preferably, but I'll take New Amsterdam if you have it. And uh, one olive. That, that works. Okay, um, here's one. Uh, this is a, a, we're testing out sort of a, a new question. Right, so you are a guinea pig for this. Is a hot dog a sandwich? Yeah, that's tough. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I would say technically yes, but I refuse to accept that. Uh, I will rage against that reality. So, yeah, I mean, there's I saw this great graphic the other day where it had like, you know, how like they have the Dungeons and Dragons, lawful, good and chaotic, neutral and that sort of thing. Those six that like the six blocks. Yeah, I had all that. Yes. And I had the six alive. Right. And I had all of those um, in sandwich form. So like you had your your normal sandwich guy, your chaotic sandwich guy. So like a chaotic uh, or like an evil neutral or no it was like lawful evil or something like that had a, a burrito as a sandwich like it, it was very fascinating um so i kind of <laughs> changed my perspective on the sandwich debate but yes yeah, so i would probably say a hot dog is a sandwich even though i don't like that that's <laughs> okay. personally I, I, re, I resent that all right that's fair uh the last question i'll ask and then uh, frank will jump in um we pose this to to our guests um regardless of of party affiliation. Um, but, uh, in the Trump era, lots of people are interested in doing something, which, uh, we always find good, whether regardless of who the president is at the time, just to do something. Uh, what's one organization you support and why? One organization I support? Well, I support my employer, Commentary Magazine. Um, <laughs> beyond that, you know, I generally have very few associations. Um, uh, I'm a union member. I'm a member of the Writers Guild. Um, but I, I generally don't share the, the guild's politics, but they don't seem to care about that. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I had no, I had not thought about this. I don't have many associations. That's I try fair. very much that's, to that's keep fair. it to myself. <laughs> that's fair. Frank, no, you want, Frank, you want to close it out? Sure. Yes. No, uh, for those who are interested in, in following you, uh, hearing more of your thoughts, uh, where can people find and follow you? Uh, you can read me uh, at commentarymagazine.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah C. Rothman. And I have a Facebook fan page uh, at Noah C. Rothman. All right. Uh, Noah, thank you so much for joining us. This has uh, been great. We appreciate you taking the amount of time. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back on again in the future to kind of explore some of these issues in more depth. Thanks, guys. It's been my pleasure. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Noah. All right, thanks again for listening to this special episode. We really appreciate you taking the time. Again, please follow us on Twitter at @takingship and that's ship with a p as in as in prescribe. Uh, please rate and review us on uh, iTunes. Those really help us or any of the podcasting services you listen to. We hope you enjoyed the interview. Obviously, we didn't get to a lot of things. Uh, some of the things that we wanted to talk to talk about were um, uh, the approach to the media at large and the conservative look at that the media's uh, liberal and how that may have led to some of the ideas of fake news. Um, things we want to talk about also are um, in pers the persecution complex that a lot of Republicans have. Uh, we basically wanted to cover a lot of different issues that we thought we, could, we would, be, uh, would be interesting to our listeners, which are all the reasons why we'll have to have Noah on again, because uh, we just basically ran out of time. But thank you so much and have a great week.